So this evening I'd like to continue the reflections we've been having around uh, the Eightfold Path. And particularly tonight, I'd like to focus in the second path factor, which is the factor of wise thought or wise intention. Now, the Buddha really was a radical of his time and truly described his own teaching as being very radical, as running contrary to the ways of the world. As I mentioned it the other day, is swimming against the tide. And the Buddha described those who followed the path of awakening and liberation also as radicals and revolutionaries. Because we must understand that the Buddhist teaching completely upset the status quo of India at that time, a time where, you know, the whole culture was governed by things like caste, hierarchies, social hierarchies, uh, duty, sacrifice. And he really turned all of this on its head. On its head. But it, was, it really wasn't just the outer kind of um, revolutions that he really instigated. Of course, what he really felt, I believe, is that the greatest revolution was in people's own hearts and minds, upsetting, in a way, the status quo of our own thinking and beliefs and ways of living. Now, he sometimes, I think one way of describing the path of awareness and all that it asks of us is that it really is, in a way, a path of radical accountability. So one of the first big insights that the Buddha proposed is the premise, the possibility, the consideration that the causes of joy and the causes of uh, struggle and suffering reside within our own hearts. Not to say that there are many, many conditions in the world. Of course, there are many conditions in the world that can be difficult and unpleasant or lovely and pleasant. But what he really said, that the actual source of joy and the source of joy, uh, sorrow lies in a, either within our own understanding or our own confusion. Seeing things the way they are or not seeing things the way they actually are. This is really actually, <laughs> this actually really is quite a big premise. It's, it's quite a major step to acknowledge that. Because if we can see that, and really understand that the sources of sorrow and happiness are not in the events and people or things in the world, 
then it follows that really to discover unshakable joy and the end of suffering, we really need to look deeply into our own hearts. Rather than living in an ongoing relationship with the world of expectation, disappointment, and blame. I think this is what we would call a kind of radical accountability. As we look within our own hearts, the very real question, of course, that we're all asked to consider is, what is it that we are asked to cultivate to bring suffering to an end? Now, almost 2,600 years ago, the Buddha looked at his own life, and he looked around him at the lives of those around him, and he saw that there was a kind of basic structural problem with the life that involved endlessly running in circles, pursuing objects and things and attachments and events that we believed would offer lasting security or fulfillment or happiness. He saw that there was a basic structural problem with that kind of life. So his advice was to stop running, to stop walking in circles. His advice was, be still. Conceive of a different way of being in the world, a life deeply rooted in integrity, in wisdom, and compassion. So here we have this curious paradigm of all of our lives, that we have a kind of essential aloneness, in that the most important lessons of our lives we will actually be asked to learn alone. In many ways, we learn to live alone. We learn to die alone. In many ways, we are alone in, in the capacity to bring about the end of suffering and confusion in our lives. No one can actually do this for us. And at the same time, of course, we are very relational beings. And it really wouldn't matter. The geography of that doesn't matter. You know, if we lived in a Himalayan cave or in the middle of New York, we do live in a seamless interconnectedness with all beings, with all life. You know, and Bhikkhu Bodhi sort of uses that metaphor of the Roman god Janus, who faces simultaneously in two directions. You know, and when we look inwardly, we see our personal world, of course, our world of views, our temperament, our moods, our emotions, our memories, our hopes. We, we see everything that really forms our world of what we call individuality or self. And we see within that inner world, amongst many of the impulses and yeah, many of the impulses that can arise. One of the impulses that much of our life revolves around is trying to find ways to avoid suffering. This is not exactly the same as ending suffering. 
but that a lot of our activity is actually generated in many ways. Now, I'm not making a judgment about this. This is very human behavior. A lot of our activity is generated to secure our personal well-being and happiness. Fair enough. Now, when we look outwardly, so that's what happens when we look inwardly. Simultaneously, we look outwardly and acknowledge that we live in very often complex relationships with others whose lives intersect with our own. So there's this ongoing dynamic in our life where our self is intersecting with the world of other selves, who, of course, have got their own package of moods and memories and hopes and temperaments and views and opinions. It's an inevitable intersection. It's no wonder it's so complicated. But what we see is that in simple fact, our life is tied together with the lives of others. This will always be. Our aloneness in many ways is tied together with the aloneness of others. We suffer together. We love together. And in many ways, we awaken together. That well-being and happiness and peace doesn't exist in isolation just as fear and rage and, and confusion doesn't exist in isolation. So in this relatedness, which is the nature of our life, it's, we're engaged in an ongoing two-way dialogue with the world and with others. Now, we are, of course, impacted by the world. You know, our, it, the world, our, our interactions with other people plays its part in shaping and forming and altering our own attitudes and feelings and views and moods. And of course, our own attitudes and emotions and tendencies flow out into the world. That is the nature of this dialogue. We affect the hearts and lives of others moment to moment for better or worse with every act and thought and word and choice, which is why the Buddha offered the Eightfold Path. That that impact and that affect may be one of kindness and compassion. Now what we see is this ongoing communication, this ongoing dialogue that we have with life in every moment it can be flavored by confusion or by wisdom. That that dialogue can be rooted in fear or in faith, in greed or in generosity, in harshness or compassion. We know that we can't actually opt out of this world. And our challenge, and I think our invitation on this path, is to consciously opt into this dialogue. And as Nagarjuna said, you know, what do you do with a life that doesn't go away? <laughs> and the suggestion of this path is that we stop wanting it to go away. Now, in this practice, we're actually training wise relationship. We're cultivating ways of being moment to moment where integrity and generosity and compassion 
are not just wonderful moments that we stumble across if we're lucky. We are learning to swim against the tide, which means that we are committing ourselves to cultivating in all moments everything that is wholesome and liberating and transforming for the well-being of ourselves and the well-being of the world and everything in it. Acknowledging that we can't choose whether or not to engage with this world, we can actually only choose how we are engaging, how we are relating. And it is why in this teaching such weight and such significance is given to what is called wise thought or wise intention, the second link in the Eightfold Path. Wise thought and wise intention follows in the footsteps of the first link in the Eightfold Path, which is wise understanding or wise view. Now, I think it's important to understand that intention is the vehicle through which we're constantly communicating our view, our understanding or our lack of understanding. It's constantly flavoring our intentions, our, our intentions draw upon and embody the views that we have. But wise intention is also, it's interesting because remember the Eightfold Path is all links. Think of it as beads on a chain. Wise intention is the ground of everything that follows. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise meditation. All of these are flavored by and preceded by wise intention. It's a very pivotal, pivotal place in mindfulness. It's a very pivotal place in our practice. In the Dhammapada, it said, the thought manifests as the word, the word manifests as the deed, the deed develops into habit, and the habit into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. As the shadow follows the body, as we think, so we become. As we think, so we become. So intention is really forming this very crucial link that connects our views, our beliefs, with the ways that we engage with the world. So when our intentions are wise, so too will our speech, our actions, our practice be wise. And when our intentions are confused, uh, which is often what we call impulse, by the way, when our intentions are confused or muddled, um, that's kind of like volunteering for suffering because everything that follows is going to be confused and muddled. The Buddha was very simple around wise thought or wise intention. He, he got it really simple, which is great. Three, just three, a very short list. 
the intention of renunciation, the intention of loving kindness, the intention of compassion. He also got really simple around unwise intention. There are also just three. Craving, ill will, and harmfulness. Now for a Buddha, okay, so imagine this, for a Buddha, renunciation, letting go, loving kindness, compassion, they're naturalized, they're effortless. They're not second nature as we call it, their first nature. But for the rest of us, anyone here who's not a Buddha, wise intention is actually a moment-to-moment practice, something we cultivate. We're cultivating, we're practicing renunciation, practicing kindness, practicing compassion. And the practice of them loosens the grip of unwise intentions. You know, the practice of wise intention loosens the grip of craving, ill will, and harmfulness. So wise intention is really a commitment of our heart to freedom. It's a commitment of our heart to the end of suffering. And we practice them first as second nature, but we practice them so that for us too, they really become first nature. Now this evening, I want to look at what these intentions look like, really not as abstract or good ideas, but what they look like for us in, the li- in our lives as lay people, and look really how radical that commitment to that kind of intentionality is and the challenges that it brings. And although I'd like to, in a way, explore these three wise intentions separately, I think it's very important to recognize it's a very artificial separation. Um, In reality, letting go, kindness and compassion are really bundled together, as are craving, ill will, and harmfulness, also a kind of package deal. in dialogue with each other, cooperating with each other. Now, let's look at craving, first of all, which is a very problem in our world, isn't it? Put it mildly. The Buddha said the world is on fire with craving. It's on fire with craving. We might even say it's uh, warming our world up. But craving is an instant trigger. Now, why is it a problem? You know, and we'll talk about some of the manifestations. Why is it a problem? Because what craving does, it's an instant magnifier of self and self-view. You notice when craving is operating, what is the, the dialogue that's going on or monologue that's going on inwardly? It's the language in I want, I need, I must have. Craving leads to grasping, and it leads to fear. Fear of loss, fear of being without, fear of not having enough. I want, I need, and I must have, of course, coexists with I want to get rid of, I want to avoid, I want to annihilate. The fertile ground of ill will. 
the fertile ground for the magnification of self and actually wanting to get rid of and annihilate is a, a fertile ground for, for um, unethical action. When we feel separated from others by the power of craving and aversion, harmfulness can and does happen, whether it's in the kind of um, you know, grosser forms of, of, you know, of harm, or whether it's even in these form, you know, grosser forms of prejudice and violence and untruthfulness. Now, equally, the intentions of renunciation, loving kindness, and compassion, they cooperate together. They strengthen each other, and they nurture each other. Letting go really calms down the energy of craving. And it really, in learning to let go, calms down this, this, this energy or sense of insufficiency, this sense of lack, because craving just keeps playing on that sense of lack. So learning to let go calms down this sense of insufficiency, this sense of lack. It weakens, you know, letting go weakens the belief in self. Letting go weakens the solidity of self-view. And of course, that letting go is mentioned the other night, deeply rooted in the fabric of ethics and kindness, of protecting rather than harming. So the letting go, you know, this kind of cultivation of, of letting go, kindness, compassion, said to be the guardian, the protector of the world. Now, First of all, I mean, we talked about this some nice, the other night, but I want to pick up on it again. It's a horrible, horribly unpopular word in our culture, you know, letting go. Associations, you know, the associations of deprivation. And we do use other words, and they're fine, you know. Use other words other than renunciation, release, letting go. Well, it was absolutely fine. But I actually really like the word renunciation myself. I, I really like it. I, I think it's a grand word. <laughs> you know, it's a grand word. It's kind of like pregnant with possibilities. Now, you know, we can actually really be craving in any situation in our life. You know, I, I've heard of monks, you know, and, and, you know, we don't want to idealize monks and we don't want to undermine them either. But I heard this from a monk. That, you know, on robe-giving day, which happens, you know, like once a year, felt really, really jealous, this fellow monk's robe. It was a much nicer color. You know, and, 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 you know, have you ever been in a Starbucks on a busy day? You know, like, how many cravings can you have around coffee? <laughs> it's, like, it's like a whole other language, you know. A skinny latte with, you know, this, this, and the other. Coffee? But it's, it's like the elaboration of craving, isn't it? It's like this elaboration of craving. It's got all these nuances. <laughs> I mean, first on an ethical level, as Gandhi once said, you know, there is enough in this world for everyone's need. There is not enough for everyone's greed. And that's the simple truth. That is a simple truth. You know, there is enough food in this world for everyone's needs. There's enough medicine. No one actually has to starve. 
No one has to die of poverty-related illnesses. And yet the greatest sorrow of our time is, is that thousands of children are dying of just that and millions are hungry. So renunciation is really about expanding the area of our concern and really seeing ourselves in the family of beings rather than this kind of um, one-person family. And it is really what, what letting go is about is a commitment to the well-being of the world. I know that it's a commitment to the end of suffering. You know, and I know that, you know, just like renunciation feels like a hard word, suffering is not a very popular word either. <laughs> you know, and, and it's like, but it's a really harsh reality. It's a really harsh reality. Whether it's the, you know, the very, the very most extreme forms of suffering we do see in our life, or whether it's just this gnawing ache of insufficiency. I'm not enough. I don't have enough. And when we have that, you know, the way that this sense of view of self operates is basically as an appetite. If we feel insufficient, the view of self operates as an appetite. It's kind of like, you know, the original consumer. And it's just never enough, you know. And in the Tibetan tradition, of course, the most graphic image that is used is the image of the hungry ghost, you know, these unfortunate beings who are born into this world with these enormous bellies, insatiable appetites, and these tiny mouths and throats. So that even when they, no matter how much they eat, they can never actually feel themselves. And you know, in Asia, for the hungry ghosts, they put out crumbs that are small enough to go down the throats. So it's not a question of condemning the hungry ghost, but the sense of compassion for that starving creature. Now the thing about the hungry ghost, or the view of self as an appetite, is that life becomes an ongoing series of disappointments. Because, you know, no matter what is actually swallowed, it's actually never enough. It doesn't satisfy the appetite. So disappointment comes again and again. Now, one of the kind of radical things about this path is that, you know, we're really asked to look at the wisdom of that disappointment. Rather than think it's bad news, there's something really written upon disappointment that is saying, what's really going on here? You know, in my understanding, every mystical journey, including the journey of the Buddha, begins with disappointment. The Buddha was a very disappointed person when he started out in his path. You know, he'd had this protected life, promised this fantastic position, you know, surrounded by pleasure. Hey, and guess what? Didn't work. Didn't work. So in a way, his journey began with the wisdom of disappointment. Now, the kind of letting go that is talked about is not about self-denial, but as an ultimate kindness, because we're really asked to distinguish between need and craving. You know, it's not to say people don't have any needs. Of course they do. I might say the Buddhist list is also a very short list of needs. <laughs> but there is a difference. We are asked to understand that the difference between need and craving. And look how much craving is actually really tied up with our incredibly and increasingly low levels of tolerance for discomfort. 
You know, and a lot of the wisdom in this path is actually really finding the equanimity to embrace discomfort because it's part of life. You know, I've never met anybody, anybody, I don't think there's anybody in the whole history of humankind who's managed to create and arrange a life where there is no discomfort. I'm absolutely positive I'm not going to be the first. And I hope that you share that certainty for yourself. You know, because it, it kind of is a big letting go. It's a big letting go, and it kind of changes the shape of the heart, and it changes the direction of life. Other than trying to kind of get rid of this discomfort as a problem, it, it's just part of life. And it's also part of the fabric of compassion. You know, we see how often the hint of discomfort just makes us want to flee. You know? The flinch moments we're endlessly encountering in our day. <gasps> you know, that. You know, the sound of the garbage truck. You know, twinging the knee. There's so much, really. The list is endless. Um, you know, one of the things I, I really valued about the years I lived in India was that I never got what I wanted. <laughs> I was hard in the beginning. It was really hard in the beginning. But it was just a simple truth. I mean, maybe once or twice, or maybe three or four times, you know. But I mean, basically, it was a basic premise that I never got what I wanted, you know. I mean, I've got a lot of what I didn't want. <laughs> <laughs> but I realized there was, there was something about that that was actually really I- incredibly, uh, what's the word for it? <laughs> Maturing. Maturing, because it was about actually finding that inner steadiness, rather than all, always my sense of well-being or happiness being dependent on getting what I wanted. If that would, had governed my life, I would have lasted about a month, if that. Letting go doesn't mean not caring. It means not following the pathways of craving and aversion that always end in the same place of pain. It is a commitment to care and happiness. Now, I would say there is a shadow side to renunciation. And sometimes I've seen it where, you know, we don't like something or we struggle with someone or, or, you know, there's something really unpleasant or we feel it's too much. We say, I'm just going to let go of that. Really, we're just walking away. We're just turning our backs on something that we don't want to deal with. And we say it's renunciation, but really it's just a kind of It's just avoidance and aversion with a more enlightened vocabulary around it. And it doesn't end suffering. It only increases it. I think it's so important for us to to see really for ourselves because this is not something for somebody to tell us. I think it's so important for us to see really for ourselves how much suffering is actually tied up with craving and aversion. To really see that, to deeply understand it, is really to learn to let go of suffering. But a lot of craving aversion also rests upon a kind of delusion, isn't it? It's a sort of projected promise. I mean, why would we chase after anything? Why would we avoid anything or feel we have to avoid something? If we didn't believe that that thing or person or event held the intrinsic power to either make us happy or unhappy. If we didn't believe that, 
we wouldn't crave or flee. But that's actually, there's this kind of process of projected promise that's going on. You know, I will be happy if I get that because that's going to make me happy. Or I'm going to be less unhappy if I get rid of that because that makes me unhappy. This is that circle we're walking in, running in, floundering in. In Buddhist terminology, this is called enchantment. Uh, you know, and I, I know we use that word other ways, but please, I'm using it very specifically. It's the buying into projected promise. So it's way, the ways that craving aversion are really built upon delusion. And isn't that the point of cultivating wise understanding and wise view, is to let go of the delusion so that the craving and the aversion also just fades away. It's also so important to see that renunciation is not a blanket condemnation of all desires. You know, in truth, there are many, many wholesome desires in this life. You know, the desire for freedom, the desire for connectedness, the desire to care for others, for intimacy, for, for sensitivity, for, for happiness, and many, many wholesome desires in this life. And there's kind of two different words that I used in Pali. You know, one is tanha, the unquenchable thirst, and the other is chanda, it's the wholesome, wholesome aspiration. And it's very important to acknowledge that. But um, the wholesome aspiration doesn't cause suffering. Suzuki Roshi, he, he put it in this lovely way. He said, renunciation is not getting rid of the things of the world, but accepting that they pass away. But accepting that they pass away. And I wonder if we can accept that and what a difference it would make in our lives to accept that the wonderful and the terrible events, the thoughts, the sensations, the people we love, the people we struggle with, every single emotion and mood, even this body itself, you know, it's going to last for a time and it will pass. And if we can accept that, it seems to me, we can imagine how much agitation and, and tension and struggle would also pass away. Hmm? It would also pass away. So this, this practice of this first wise intention is a practice of happiness. But it is a practice because we, most of us, have a much longer history with clinging and craving and aversion than we do with non-arguing. One of the practices is the practice of restraint. Now again, this is pretty countercultural, isn't it? Because I think in this culture often restraint is equated with suppression. Nasty word. But restraint is really about being mindful at our sense doors, including the sense door of the mind. And it's being mindful of the sense doors of all that flows in and all that flows out. It's a practice for our life, not just for the cushion. You know, in the wheel of dependent origination, which is this kind of imagery used to describe how the world of suffering is born and how actually liberation is born, um, the sense doors are often portrayed as being the open windows in a house. And through those open windows, you know, the world is flowing in and the world is flowing out. Now, often we hear in this teaching about restraint at the sense doors, or even guarding the sense doors. 
And we imagine that means guarding against the world, you know, guarding against the world. Now, there's some truth in that, you know, in terms of simplicity and wholeheartedness. But it's actually much more than that. It's actually really watching what flows out of those sense doors, too. Out of our eyes, out through our hands, through our minds, through our speech. What is flowing out of those sense doors? Is it wise view or is it unwise view? Is it wise intention or is it unwise intention? So restraint is not about slamming the window shut or putting blinds over them. Restraint is really just about cultivating a kind of pregnant pause. Being mindful before we enact our moods and our preferences and our likes and our dislikes. Now, in this part, I'd just also like you to reflect and invite you to reflect on the wonderful benefits and fruits of renunciation. Because it's certainly not meant to be a punitive practice. Well, certainly every moment that we lessen craving and aversion, we are lessening the mountain of suffering in our hearts and our world. But also imagine not holding on to anything. Imagine that. Not leaning on anything. Not clinging to anything. Not being identified with anything. Imagine the spaciousness, the boundlessness of your heart. Imagine the the unshakable calmness and freedom and ease of your mind. Because really that not clinging to anything, not identifying anything, is really laying down all the arguments that revolve around how things should be. It is joy. Non-clinging is joy. It really opens the door to a heart that is fluid and responsive and unbounded, where ethics and kindness and compassion are really the natural expression. And that is really the point, in a way, of letting go is to allow that arising of that unfettered kindness and compassion and freedom. When there is loving kindness really flowering in our lives, it brings into being a different ground for that relatedness I spoke about. Rather than the ground of our relationships being upon likes and dislikes, or upon craving or aversion or fear or wanting approval, we're actually going to be able to meet the people in our lives with a sense of very profound care and concern for their well-being and happiness. Now, there will always be people in this world who we connect with easily and those that we don't people that we trust easily and people we feel more uneasy around. But what loving kindness is asking us to do is to make room for all. Now, then loving kindness is a very special kind, a very specific kind, if we might say, of letting go, because it is the unconditional letting go of your will. And for many people, this is actually the most challenging of all all, all, 
all of the renunciations for us to make in our life. You know, we can see the way as human beings with a heart that the sense of injury or the fear of injury often lurks within us, very alert to the real and the perceived words and acts and re of rejection and hurt and blame and judgment, the, the, the perceptions that cast us into modes of defense and attack. And you know what, we, when, whenever we feel ill will, isn't that the place where we feel the sense of self and other most strongly? And the schism and the divide and the gap between self and other most strongly is really built upon that foundation of mistrust and ill will. Letting, learning to soften ill will is a wisdom practice, just as real loving kindness is a wisdom practice. And I think none of us are really short of opportunities to let go of ill will, whether it's in the little whimpers of aversion or complaint or the major hatreds in our life. And one of the teachings that said, used wisely this body, this mind is a raft to freedom. Used unwisely, this body, this mind ties us to suffering. With this body, this mind does the bidding of the skillful and the unskillful, the wholesome and the unwholesome. Now, like any other kind of letting go, the letting go of ill will doesn't happen because we're shouting at ourselves to do so. That's another kind of aversion, as we've mentioned. But it is really, only happens in the light of wisdom, of really seeing, really, is it worth it? Is it worth it? I mean, I know sometimes we enjoy our ill will, you know. We can feel kind of self-righteous, you know, and superior, and we're afraid that if we let go of it, gee, someone's going to get away with something as if we were the caretaker of the karma of the world. <laughs> we are not. We don't need to worry about it. Is it worth it ever? Just remember what it's like to feel ill will, to feel enraged, to feel resentful, to feel jealous to be lost in blame, is, it, is the suffering ever worth it? Or does it just lead to more suffering? Now, as people in this world, of course, we are interacting with a vast range of people and events that ask for our, our responses. Now, let's, let's get real. Some of these events and people are really, really difficult. I mean, we see people who, who cause harm and war and uh, you know, violence and prejudice and greed. We see people we love harming themselves or others, and we're asked again and again to pause and ask, how do we respond to it? And mindfulness is not passive. Mindfulness is an ongoing dialogue with wise action. Please remember that. You know, wise view, wise intention are in an ongoing dialogue with wise action. So mindfulness is not a prescription for passivity. It's not a prescription for opting out of action. 
but it is actually asking us to look at what informs wise action. And the truth is we don't always know what response is best. And in a way, the question can be approached with integrity, but the question of what is the wisest response to make in the face of any suffering, it's rarely very certain. We don't always know. We can't always predict the outcome of our words, our actions, our responses, and the effects they have on others. And in many ways, this practice asks us to live with the ambiguity of not knowing. But we can, perhaps, with the greatest inner honesty, we can know whether our acts are born of wise intention, whether they're born of care, of empathy and kindness, born not just of self-interest, but out of a genuine concern for the well-being of others. Letting go is a forerunner of loving-kindness. Kindness is a forerunner of compassion, the third wise intention. Just as compassion also fosters kindness and renunciation. They work, all go back and forth. Now, suffering is a very real and har harsh and tormented reality. Whether it's the suffering of war and hunger, the suffering of loneliness and fear, the suffering of our bodies and minds, this is the first noble truth. That there is suffering in this life. The noble eightfold path, the fourth noble truth, is may, it exists only because of the first noble truth. It is a response to the first noble truth that there is suffering. An invitation not to flee, but to find the pathways of fearlessness and compassion. Now, sometimes we know compassion is just unhesitating and natural. You know, sometimes we're faced with a situation in another person where we really f sense their anguish and their struggle so strongly. And, you know, in that moment, all the barriers of self and others just melt away. And the compassion arises so, so naturally, so spontaneously. It's like Milarepa, or I think it was Milarepa, said, you know, just as I instinctively reach out to touch a wound in this body with my hand as part of, uh, as this body, why would I not instinctively reach out to touch the wound in another just as easily as part of this body? And that's often the sense we have of compassion, that our sense of connectedness, of 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 connectedness is so clear. And the barrier between self and others really fall away. But sometimes it's not spontaneous. You know, and, and this practice is a practice of not just leaving it to chance, but to learn in the face of suffering again and again, to pause, to listen, to come out of our shell, to come out of the cocoons that are often born of fear, listening, but also wise response. You know, when you look at the historical images of Kuan Yin, the, the kind of Buddha of compassion, you know, we often see her seated in this receptive, deeply still listening pose. But historically, Kuan Yin is also portrayed as an armed warrior you know, armed with, with weapons and spears and shields and all these things. 
And it's really an embodiment of the commitment of compassion to also say no to the causes of suffering. And it is where compassion is not just that empathy, that receptivity. It is also the response. There are many things that we can be aware of that cause so much harm that we can struggle with from class structures to racism to our politicians to, you know, so many things. Actually, we could spend our whole day arguing, couldn't we? Some do. (laughs) But that's not swimming against the tide. That's not swimming against the tide. That's being part of the tide. This is one of a rather frank saying that says only dead fish swim with the tide. (laughs) So swimming against the tide doesn't mean more argument. But it means to know how to say no, how to cultivate a trembling heart, how to find that commitment within ourselves to really bring suffering to an end. Tending the garden of wise intention is a moment-to-moment practice. Letting go, kindness, compassion. It's a very short list. But it's one that is so, so worth remembering. And that these intentions are really cultivated one moment at a time, but in a way every moment of cultivating those intentions of letting go of kindness or compassion, that is a way of liberating that moment. And actually, that is enough. If we take a moment just to sit quietly together. live with kindness. May all beings live with compassion. May all beings live with an unbounded heart. Tons of walking period, and again tonight, if we would come back at ten to nine. So, if you're the bell ringer, if you could just ring it five minutes later, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.